Come on, welcome. Klapp. Yeah, I clap. I clap. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Now everyone's ready? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Saman, once again, welcome. Um, it's really good to have you here. For <laughs> anyone who doesn't know you, doesn't know what you do, you're a music producer, music writer, podcaster, creative director, music journalist. Uh, have I have I missed out on any other? Basically, he's very multi-talented. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Mm. You know, I don't want to be yeah. the one to say it. Um, yeah. Also, also, uh, I started out in film and TV, so. Yeah. Filmmaker right, there as we well. go. So done, done a couple filmmaker as well. And yeah. Short films, yeah. yeah. So and it's, I, it's uh, been a ride. No, it's no, been a ride. you're 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 a super talented person, and we'll get into why you're so talented. But um, one of the reasons why we decided to have you on, we came across you in an article that was like, uh, you know, the most promising Arabs under the age of forty in in America. And uh, we we read a list of the people you worked with and you collaborated with people, whether this is through producing or writing or interviewing people like Drake, Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, Bun B. ASAP Rocky. ASAP Rocky, Hannibal Buress, who's a, who's a very funny comedian. And you just had such a diverse Colbert, list of Stephen people. Colbert, yeah. So before we get into all of that, was it always going to be music? Did you always, did you come from a musical family? How did, how did that happen? Uh, I think, well, the first thing that I want to say before we get too deep in this is I want to make sure y'all know that like I'm, I'm repping Lebanon while we're recording this. I'm going to throw, I'm going to okay. throw my jacket we on in a second, that. but just, I just want y'all to know like Lebanon is with me. Thanks for the love. You can always wear a wife beater as long as you're repping Lebanon. I think that's, <laughs> that should be a saying. No, 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 no wife beating, no wife beating. I'll, I'll call it a tank top. <laughs> okay. I'll call it a tank top. Uh, I'm, gonna throw, I'm gonna throw this jacket on. Give me, give me like two fair seconds. Enough. One sec, one sec. All right, there we go, there we go. I'm back. I'm cool. back. Um, yeah, I think music was always gonna be a thread for me. Um, I didn't know that I came from a musical family until the last few, until maybe like five years into my career, six years into my career. Um, and then I found out that like my dad and his siblings had a, like a rock and roll band in Palestine um, wow. called, called El Baraim. So I, you know, when I first started out, it was, I think probably two in, in terms of family is two people who really, or two sets of people who really inspired me. My parents, like for sure, we, we listened to a lot of music in the house. So I developed like real strong like love and appreciation for music through them and they were playing a lot of like funk and blues and jazz and like classic rock um those are kind of the genres that that my parents uh, were into um and then my like my oldest cousin Yezin uh who was like the only like boy cousin I had growing up he was the one who introduced me to rap music so I had my parents who gave me the music from their generation and then I had my cousin Yezin who was like, okay, this is what, this is what our generation is going to listen to. Yeah. Um, and so I just had like, there was, I, I, I always knew that I felt passionate about music, like based on how I listened to it, which was like very obsessively. Um, so then when I started my career, I think that, you know, looking back, yeah, there's always, no matter what like thing I'm doing, no matter what facet I'm in, there's like always a thread of music in, in the, the mm. work that I do. And you mentioned that your dad was was in a was in a rock band in Palestine, which I don't know why that's just such a funny sentence. Like, yeah, my dad was in a rock band in Palestine. <laughs> what 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 uh, time period was this? 
So this was, so what's crazy is they were actually like the first uh, original like rock and roll band in Palestine. So it wasn't like they were just in one of the bands. It was like, basically they, this, so they, they started in like 66. And there were a couple other bands that were happening like a little bit before them. Um, there was like this Armenian Palestinian band called the Flintstones, um, nice among name. others. And yeah, I love that name. And um, my dad's band. I think I think the Flintstones were kind of like it was their friends, and they were like that was kind of like their inspiration to pick up some instruments. Um, but then it was so my dad's band was called El Baraim, and. Um, after 67 they started to write their own music and not just basically everyone at the time had been just like doing covers of like cover band yeah yeah and so they were the first band to like say oh let's write about what's happening in society um Mm. so there and was their music at the was their music at the time uh, only like well well like received in palestine or was it able to reach a more international audience that's a really good question um I think that like one of the sad things or like bittersweet things to think about in terms of like growing up, they they weren't under occupation at first, but after 67, um, is that they were like very, really popular in Palestine. So they like, when I went a couple of years ago, my uncle was showing me like all the different venues that they played in and they were playing in like venues that were like hundreds of seats. And then the, the biggest one was like, almost a thousand seats and they were selling them out um and so i just i feel like even here in the states like if you're if you as an artist if you're starting out and you're selling out like 200 300 capacity venue like that's something to be proud of so the fact that they were able to do that in in palestine is amazing um Mm. but then but then the the downside of it obviously when you're living life under occupation there, there wasn't an infrastructure for a music industry it just wasn't going to happen you know and it's and it's crazy because there's so much great rock and roll that came out of lebanon and egypt around the same time and i always think like if they had had like freedom of movement if there had been infrastructure there either they could have recorded actual albums in palestine or they could have gone to beirut and recorded something you know mm. what I mean? I'd also say censorship, mass censorship at the time, even more than now, played a very big role when it comes to like limiting and oppressing artistic views and basically the noise of many up and coming artists at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, well, you're yeah, saying, 100%. You're, you're saying that that Arti- censorship happened in, in Lebanon or? No, and both because yeah. like at the time, you know, you didn't have social media, you didn't have the internet. And I think something that really helped up and coming artists in this day and age is that whereas back then you, there was mass censorship, even up until this day and age, there is censorship. But like the internet helps your voice and gives you, allows you, enables you through a variety of platforms to spread your voice to a masser audience. Whereas back then, if the ruling parties did not really appreciate what you were saying in your songs, then they could easily limit and oppress your voice. Very Especially true. when art is supposed to mirror politics and society. Like we, whenever we think of art, whether that be through film, music, or whatever format, you can usually dictate that with a certain era and history, a certain time period that mirrors society. Uh, Saman, I've seen you speak about the blues a lot and speak about how important the time frame was in america for the blues to come out why the african-american community were singing about the blues and how that artistic for like format came out and it's very representative of what was going on at, in north america at the time and i think if you go back to palestine 
you know what I mean? Like in terms of in terms of censorship, what you can, what you can't say, and in terms of speaking out against injustice and what's going on in society, there's probably so much for Middle Eastern people to tap into because I I think in terms of a region, nobody faces more injustice than Middle Eastern people in terms of geopolitics and the people we have ruling over us and and the issues we have in society it's there's so much for artists to tap into it's just allowing them that freedom of expression to do so um and i just kind of wanted to 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 ask so after you discovered this passion and you always said music you you went uh to ut austin right correct yep yep university of texas and at you, austin you, nice and and you you essentially got your start, I was reading, because you, you worked, it was like in, in the music journalist society, or you were working for like a, they had, um, the exact... so there was, there's a TV station at the university, um, it's like all student run, um, and so I started out there, there, I, I knew that there was a hip hop show, and I was very passionate about hip hop, um, but it was hard for me to find like, the people who produced it like uh, there was a bunch of different shows who all met at different times during, throughout the week um and so for like months i was like i was trying to find the people who made the hip-hop show but and, in, until i found them um i was i auditioned and i got the job of hosting the entertainment news show so it was like the the college version of e-news or something nice um, <laughs> I wish I could. I'm sure. I'm sure the tapes exist somewhere. But um, so that's what I was doing in the meantime, and eventually I did find the kids who produced the hip hop show, and that was very quickly. Like I realized, like I'm really passionate about this because I'm passionate about it. Like I have like this like constant motivation to like go out and do interviews, come back to the TV station, put you know edit them, put them up on the channel, like. I like I got a lot of satisfaction out of that and a lot of satisfaction out of creating a team to like produce that show. And how did and you Saman, reach you always yeah. I've seen I've seen that on multiple occasions. You've always credited your success and you're very vocal about it because of your university years. You always say you always say that without those years in university in Texas, you wouldn't be where you are right now. And first of all, why? Why do you credit your success to your university years? And second of all, is there a particular experience during that time that shaped up who you are right now when it comes to your career trajectory? Yeah, I think, um, you know, like I, I, I knew two things. I knew I was always passionate about music. And then I knew that I wanted to major in film because um, there wasn't like a music journalism specific like degree or whatever. Um, so and I, in general, I think my two threads are storytelling and music. So you're making films, you're telling stories. Um, so I knew that probably I needed to end up in Los Angeles at some point. Um, and I was, I was like very, very close. I got into a school in Los Angeles, Cal State Northridge. Um, and I had like gone out there to look at apartments and I was like really close to going there. And then like in the last minute, um, I got accepted into uh, the University of Texas system. So um, I, I think that it's it's crazy because if I had gone to that Los Angeles school, I wouldn't have done any of the things that I did in college. And the things that I did mm. in college, completely up till Set now, up. till now, completely like have carried me. So you're asking like, what was an experience? Um, the big the big like life changer for me 
was meeting this rapper named Bun B. Um, yeah, who's from course, a rap legend. group called yeah the legend uh, uh, Bun B. Um, he opened like all the doors for me. Um, I, I should I'll give myself a little bit of credit. I opened some doors for myself, but he opened a lot of really big doors, really important doors. Introduced me to a lot of people. Um, and yeah, and y'all were talking about Hannibal Burris. Like I met Hannibal through Bun in college, so. A lot, a lot of the relationships that I still have right now that are very strong, like literally like Hannibal called me earlier today, um, started in, in college at UT in Austin. So I, it's just, it's really, every time I go back and I think about it, it's really wild to me to think that, that my ticket to getting to LA, it really had to go through Austin. If I had just gone mm. to LA from the beginning, we wouldn't be talking to each other. Wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Which is crazy because when you're when you're that age and you're you're really into music and that's your passion, uh, and then you get the exposure of meeting people like Bun B, of be- meeting people like Hannibal Buress, like, was it overwhelming at that age? Because I remember Todd and I when we were eighteen, nineteen. I mean, basically the only thing we were doing is is worrying about parties and and what was the alcohol intake that we were gonna have on Friday and Saturday, and you were out there networking and and grinding and meeting all these heroes of yours so was it ever overwhelming were you ever did the anxiety hit or or how'd that go um what i found out pretty quick i mean i i think at that time i was like i was really naive and i was like really wet behind the ears and like i would like go into situations kind of like sometimes like a deer in the headlights but like yeah even the even and generally I'm a pretty like timid person, but like I had just enough confidence to like walk into certain doors. Um, so, but I I think what helped a lot is that what I didn't realize that I was doing like in middle school and high school was I was studying music essentially. Like I was consuming so much music, not just hip hop, like all these different genres, very religiously. I was always making CDs for myself, mix CDs for my friends, family, whatever. So that by the time, um, and I was really, really, really interested in like learning the history of the genres that I enjoyed. And because of the music that my parents put me on, as I was, as I was listening to rap music, I was hearing a lot of songs that sampled the music that my parents liked. So that made me really passionate about learning about more samples. Like if I heard other rap songs that I liked, I would say like, oh, I would look in the CD, like on the in the notes and say, oh, what's this sample? So by the time I got to a situation where I was in a room with Bun B, I could at least talk about things with uh, like a certain degree of confidence, you know, and, and knowledge. Like I wasn't just like in there trying to interview famous people. It was like, there was some intention behind it. Like, I have listened to the, these people's music. I've studied their music, and now I want to talk to them about whether it's their mm. music or philosophies. On so it's like so. The, I think that I didn't realize it at the time, but all that time that I spent um, studying music, like as a teenager, is probably what like helped me um, not just build that network, get into doors. But pe- I think people need to feel that like I'm coming at it from like a genuine place. Genuine. Yeah, rather yeah. than you, you mid, know, mid, mid, yeah. yeah, you're you're chasing clout or you're you're trying yeah. to 
use them or anything. And I think being Arab genetically helps you, man, because like we are really good at <laughs> social affairs and networking. <laughs> like you just come in, like you come into a room and you look at Bun B or Drake and you're like Habibi and it's done. Like you've, you've, <laughs> you've set up that friendship for the rest of your life. And you because you've met and I, for anyone can go on your Instagram. So you've met some ridiculously famous and talented people. Uh, you know, from the likes of Coldplay's Chris Martin, who you've hung out with a bunch of times, uh, all the way to, like I would say, people like Drake and J. Cole and everything. Was there anyone who you were ever really starstruck by? Like anyone who was ever, you know, that pinnacle of the person to meet? Um, I, I think that for the most part, I've been okay in terms of being starstruck. It hasn't really happened it's ha the I can only think of like two times that it's really happened. Once was in college at the um, the South by Southwest Festival, which I think that was another really like I didn't know it, but choosing to go to school in Austin where there's a lot of major music festivals, that was actually in incredibly helpful. But anyway, at South by Southwest one year, I think this was 2012. Um, I was going to this one show the only artists I knew who were going to be performing at that show were um, Slaughterhouse, which is like Joe Budden and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, M&M's rap guru at yeah, the time. Yeah. yeah, they were part of Eminem's group. Yeah, who I'm not like crazy about, but I was just like, okay, it's a rap mm. show, like I'll go check it out. But my one of my mentors was one of the people who put the show on, so I was like sticking with her. She got me into the green room for Slaughterhouse. And mm. I remember at the time they had a song called um, Hammer Time, I think. And yeah, I know. That. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember being in there with my with my crew, my filming crew and uh, seeing MC Hammer and be like, oh, shit, guys, like, check mm. it out. Like, that's, wow. MC Hammer. that's crazy. <laughs> and that's not what I got starstruck by. Um, yeah, we I like, can imagine. No, MC Hammer. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's let's. I mean, he's a great guy. Everyone everyone loves. Don't touch this. But if you get starstruck yeah, 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 by yeah. MC Hammer as opposed to the people you meet, something will be wrong there. <laughs> I was I was just like, oh, cool. Like we're in a room with MC Hammer, and like we were like scanning. It was like it was like a really big green room. There was probably like fifty people in there, or something, and and there was space to move around. So we were like, I was trying to see because the thing about South by Southwest is like you never know like who who's gonna be in a room. So you really have to study the room that you're in. So you make don't make sure you don't miss anyone, and then as I'm scanning the room, like my like my blood just went cold. I like froze. I punched my cameraman like on the on the on the leg. And I was like, "Yo, yo, is that Kanye?" And we're like, but we're like whispering to each other. No way. We're like whispering to each other like as loud as we can, but as quiet as we can. <laughs> and my my cameraman's like, "Yo, that's that's Kanye. That's fucking Kanye. Holy shit!" And like I was like. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go up to Kanye. I have to do it. Like I'm in this room. Like I have to say something. Um, but I like I. That was like the first time that I ever like really felt my like I felt my body like feeling different because I was in a room with someone. It, if you don't mind me asking, yeah. uh, first of all, what year was that? Was it like before Kanye started becoming a bit like yeah, all over the yeah, place? Yeah, it was 2012. Or? So it was it was still the old okay. Kanye. Still the old Kanye. Yeah. And how oh, was it? Okay. How was he like in person? Was he like how he is on TV and on the interviews or was he a bit calmer like when you went up to him? Um, he wasn't really talking that much. He was he was he was smiling, which he, he stopped doing shortly after that. I remember he was smiling <laughs> and I remember I went up to him and I was like, yo, Kanye, like I'm Saman, like I work at, you know, like I, I do interviews for like the university here, whatever. And like his bodyguard, like 
big old dude, like huge dude, just like put his arm down between me and Kanye. And he was like, yo, Kanye's not doing interviews right now. And I was like, I wasn't trying to get an interview. I wasn't trying. I just want to introduce myself. I just want to shake his hand, whatever. Um, we ended up, we did end up getting to take a picture later that night, which is like just a ridiculous, I look ridiculous in that picture and so does Kanye. Um, so that was like, that was one of two times I remember being starstruck. And then the other one was with, um, that the soul singer, Bill Withers. Oh and yeah, of just, course. Legend. Yeah. Just for like a totally different reason. Like I felt like that was actually during an interview. Like I felt starstruck. It was, the interview was kind of sprung on me. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have time to prepare for it. Um, it was like spur of the moment and, uh, and he, he wouldn't, um, break eye contact with me and that really wow. messed me she up. He was staring at you the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was staring straight at you. Yeah, whole, which wow, most artists intense. don't do that. Most artists like barely look at yeah. you when you're interviewing them, mm. but he wouldn't stop. He wouldn't stop looking at me. And it felt like I, I didn't want to look away cause I want to be rude, but I needed to look away to like think. And so I just, I got inside my own head and I messed it up and now he passed, he passed last year, RIP. Yeah. So I I'll never Rest get to redo people, that one. So, but got to but interview that, him. That must have been crazy. That must. I don't know if it was like a intimidation technique or anything, or if he was just so locked into the discussion. So maybe if anything, you should look at it positively. He must have been so interested in what you guys were talking about that he was. I like asked terrible questions. In. I asked. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I was like, trying. I, I was trying to help you out, man. <laughs> Thank I was you, trying man. to. I was, I yeah, I know. I was trying to make sure he's <laughs> like. I regret this big time. He's like my fucking agent. My one chance. <laughs> <to> talk <laughs> to the Who is this kid? Who is this kid? Who is this kid? And and uh, one of the things that but, uh, I that I read uh, about uh, you uh, as well is that uh, you credited your like uh, progression in the, in the music scene to being being Palestinian was a huge help for you in terms of networking, mm. in terms mm. of having an ear for music. What do you mean by that? Why was being Palestinian <laughs> such a huge help? Um, I think, um, for two reasons, one is a lot deeper than the other one. The deep reason is that I think when you come from a place or people that have seen like violence and oppression or repression, um, it helps you kind of instantly relate to other people who have been through that. Um, and so I feel like part of the reason I gravitated so much towards uh, hip hop was the fact that I knew that it came from people wanting to talk about like the shitty conditions they lived in and those conditions being shitty because of how the government treats them. Um, so I related to it like very, very quickly. Um, and of course, as we know, like there are plenty of rappers who have talked about Palestine on songs. So as I got to meet these rappers, I had an instant icebreaker, I could say, oh, I'm Palestinian. But then the surface level, like the not as deep thing, is that like a lot of a lot of rappers are Muslim, like, and a lot of the Muslim rappers are really good. So they were people I wanted to talk to. And because they're they're Muslim, even though they're not Arab, they're, you know, they're black Muslim, they can speak a little bit of Arabic. And so a mm. lot of times that was an icebreaker for me is being able to like go up to someone and, and say like, you know, Salaam Alaikum, like, what's going on? And that instantly like gave us like a connection that was different than usually everyone else in whatever room we're in. Yeah. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. And Saman, cause you know, you said that you've been hanging out with a lot of rappers over the past few years and rap music originally or like originated from these African-American people rapping about how they've been oppressed in American society for many years and talking about their daily lives basically. And I feel, you know, the similarities, especially like 
maybe with Lebanese, Syrians, Palestinians, is that in the Middle East, in this region, there's also a lot of oppression. And I've been keeping up with Middle Eastern hip-hop maybe for the past three months, and I've been seeing a lot of names that are starting to gain, I wouldn't say international recognition, but more recognition in the Middle East. And I feel that, first of all, if you're looking at culture, there's a lot of cultural things that people in this area could rap about. If you're talking about oppression, there's a lot of things that people can rap about. But I feel that the step that needs to be taken right now when it comes to Middle Eastern hip-hop breaking through is being able to resonate, creating a sound that will resonate with an international audience. I think me and Rayan once spoke about how like you have reggaeton. Uh, it doesn't really rap about oppression, oh, but you yeah. have a sound that's yeah, becoming yeah. more mainstream. The sound, mainstream. you mean, like the, you have, yeah. yeah. You have grime music in the UK, which is now, which over the past six, seven years has broken through to an international audience. Rap music was able to break through in the 90s. So do you see, especially because you're very experienced in this industry, do you think that maybe within the next 10 years you can have a certain sound from Middle Eastern hip-hop mm-hmm. which could resonate with the international audience? Yeah, I think about this a lot. Um, it, right now, like, I'm hearing, like, there's, like, it may become its own, like, little subgenre called, like, pali-pop, like, Palestinian pop. Um, and I've heard I've heard some, some what, good what songs. What an interesting name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of, of hip hop specifically from the Middle East, um, what I was talking to a friend about is, you know, like I've heard like, you know, like Moroccan trap, Libyan trap, like trap from like North Africa, like in Arabic, which is cool and fine and, and I enjoy it. But I think for me, what really is going to have to happen, which I think you mentioned, uh, Tarek, is there we need to hear like a tangible... Arabi rap sound like when you like when when someone puts on like a Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg song like you can immediately say oh that's a West Coast like there's a there's an identifiable West mm. Coast rap sound or like the old 80s 90s New York rap or the Texas rap down here or Memphis like they have they have a sound and you can identify it really instantly so for me I think that's the last missing like link like we have rappers from all different countries in the Middle East who are very talented, um, but if whoever's whoever's producing, I don't know a lot of producers in the Middle East, but whoever's doing the beats, like once we figure out how to hone in on a sound that sounds like us, and then eventually it will break down into like, oh, this is like Levantine rap, this is like North African, this is Gulf, you know what I mean, yeah. and even smaller. Th- that, that's the thing though, because like I there was this really big uh, Egyptian trap artist that has blown up over the past two years, and I saw an article about him, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna check his music out. When I listened to his music, it was basically as if Travis Scott is doing is singing in Arabic. Like literally, it sounds ex- the effects sound identical to Travis Scott, and that kind of even though he has a huge following, this guy at the moment. It kind of annoyed me because, as you said, like our own cultural sound is way different than like uh, Western Western sounds and trap beats and stuff. So, as you said, like I feel the problem with what many artists are doing is that they're not actually trying to stay true to their roots and they're trying to incorporate Western sounds. And I think there has been success to a certain extent with certain art, certain Middle Eastern artists like Mashru Alayla. I'm sure oh, yeah. you're familiar oh, yeah, yeah. with them, the Lebanese yeah. band. They were able to incorporate, and we need more artists like them who are going to incorporate more of their domestic roots and just export it to the West. And look at them, they've had like a decent amount of success. It's pretty natural for people to want to make, uh, to try and recreate the sounds that they enjoy in terms of music. Um, but I'm also, I'm also not worried. Like, I, just my own experience growing up in Houston, like 
the sound of Houston rap had to evolve. The early Houston rappers, they all just sounded like New York because that was the only, there wasn't even West Coast rap to emulate. So mm. I think there will always be that first generation of rappers who sound like whatever was out at the time. Um, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me that there's like a huge wave of uh, like Arab trap music. But I think that what will happen naturally, like it happened in Houston, we developed our own sound down here. Like the first big rap act from Houston was the Ghetto Boys. Most of their stuff sounded like New York rap. It was using the same samples in the same kind of way. But then we had like UGK and they sounded like the South. They were like the group that first really sounded like Texas. So it's, it's, mm. it's, it'll be natural. It'll just, it's probably happening right now. There's someone probably in a, in, in a, in a home somewhere in, in Lebanon or Palestine or wherever. Chalking shit up. Making it right now. And we'll hear it in, in a year or two or mm. something like that. So I, I, I have confidence. That, hopefully. Do you think that comes from like as a producer, as a writer, as someone who's, who's seen the industry and uh, what do you think, how, cause it, we can talk about creating a sound, but what needs to go into creating a sound? Is it sampling uh you know instruments within the region is it looking historically at at uh, some of the old sounds and few like creating a fusion with this kind of new trap wave and these new sounds what specifically needs to go into creating a sound because we because for anyone who doesn't know who is not who isn't into music we talk about rap specifically from the south or from the west coast or from the east coast but people might know might not know what we're talking about so what goes into creating that specific sound yeah like with west coast rap specifically what's kind of wild is like there's like one instrument that like connects like all west coast music even before rap music which is like the theremin that like was originally from the beach boys and that that like ooh, like that sound yeah that you hear you also hear it in in early snoop dogg and early dr dre so that is like an instrument <laughs> that i would imagine dr dre really strategically picked you know i don't know if he was listening to the beach boys in the studio but when you hear the beach boys that. you think california you know what i mean mm, yeah um and so it's all over his chronic album yeah exactly you, the chronic you, album that sound is all yes over it. yes exactly so i think i think you're on to something there i think what it's probably going to be is someone using one of our instruments in just the right way um and probably what will happen is there will be like a wave of artists who do it in a way that's like very one plus one equals two and it will still be good and we'll enjoy it um but then what will come after them will be people who do it in a way where like one plus one equals four and so our like arab instruments will be incorporated arab samples will be incorporated um but it will have like a result that's like greater than the sum of its parts and that's mm. that's what i'm really looking forward to in terms of like arab hip-hop i'm looking forward to that i think we're seeing a mini resurgence i think in general in arab art i i think with shows like rami for anyone who hasn't watched that and 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 just a lot of what i'm seeing on on, on social media is i think there's a lot more representation going on of of the middle east and in, in global media and in entertainment and i think it's only a matter of time until music catches up because there is a lot of talent there's a shit the shitload of talent and i think there's so much to tap into being middle eastern you're talking about thought it was saying it, oppression and and everything we've gone through here i mean you can you can definitely tap into that for artistic purposes and values and i, I wanted to ask you as someone who's who's been in the scene a lot and has spoken to a lot of you know really powerful people i wanted to know 
there seems to be in Hollywood a fear of speaking out in favor of Palestine. Like, I, I, I remember I found an article the other day by The Guardian and it was um, Javier Bardem and Penelope Cruz, they were tweeting or something. This goes back to 2014 when there were massive clashes between the Israeli government and Hamas. And uh, they were tweeting something like free Palestine or help Palestine. Rihanna came out on an Instagram post, something that said like support Palestine. She deleted it eight minutes later. Uh, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem deleted it after the backlash they received later. A lot of really big people in Hollywood came out and criticized them and said that they were supporting terrorist acts. So I wanted to know why is Hollywood so afraid to speak out? I mean, they speak about, out uh, on every single injustice going on in the world. Like anything that's like a fad going on, Hollywood will speak out and be supportive. But when it comes to the Palestinian cause and the injustice that's happening in Palestine, people are really afraid to touch that. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, APAC has done a great job, you know what I mean, um, of making it taboo. Uh, I, like, I, I think about this so much, like, when Lupe Fiasco was first speaking out, like, about Palestine, he, it, he did it at a time when he had, like, almost no support, like, almost no support. And there weren't even really any, like, Arabs in the business to, like, embrace that him doing that with like he really put himself out there by doing that um and i think his career probably suffered um for it not I, I won't say that's the entire reason that his 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 career suffered i think there's other factors too um but i think now it's a lot better like i'm noticing a lot more artists are speaking up and doing it like um doing it with more confidence i i still think you're right that there is like it still does feel taboo um uh in, in certain ways like i like there's this um palestinian comedian named aaron cater uh he had he had i can't remember if it was a joke or just something he said but he was like you know like if it's taboo to talk about palestine like imagine how it feels to be palestinian and i was like damn like yeah that's that's really for real um but in terms of in terms of hollywood i th i think you know part of it is you know, like Israel is like settler, settler colonial project and there weren't Arabs really that much in or specifically Palestinians that much in the United States even until after 67. Um, so if we're talking about like, you know, representation in Hollywood, we definitely, you know, were we... I don't even know if there were Arabs even doing anything until the nineties or something in, in movies. Mm. Um, so we, well, we had Danny Thomas who was Lebanese. Wait, who is Who's Danny Thomas? <laughs> you know, Danny Thomas, Danny Thomas was like a, he was a relatively big actor. I think in like from the fifties or sixties, he was like a big comedian. And, uh, yeah, yeah. He, I only found out that he was actually originally Lebanese. Like his name is something like, I mean, I, I don't know his last name, but it was something like Danny Khoury, and he changed it to Danny Thomas to acclimatize to Hollywood. And uh, I remember my... Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas, yeah. He was like a big comedian in the 50s or something, and he was actually... Yeah, I'm, I'm searching him up. He was actually Lebanese, and I remember like that was the first probably sign of representation because my parents were, were were fans of his, and they they spoke to me about him. There was also Paul, uh, Paul Anka, who's, who's Syrian, I think. Uh, so there, there was very minimal, I, I, I think, representation. But even, 
even those artists who who did have Arab roots, I don't think they properly express those roots in media i don't think they were maybe allowed to they express felt those that they had to media. hide themselves you know exactly they felt that they needed to hide um uh, and i, I on I a hope... side note danny thomas's name is amos kairus there we go exactly kairus is close. <laughs> i said khuri khuri is the most typical like lebanese christian name yeah i think it's definitely opening up a lot which is which is really exciting you know that that we could be entering an era where there's you know you don't need to hide like where you come from at all um you made me think of uh maybe you already have heard of him before but there's like a an old rock and roll dude named uh dick dale you heard of him that's the best he porn did, star name ever it is yes yeah, yeah, yeah. he should have done porn or he should have done porn. Side, that least. was a big niche that he missed out on but he's lebanese i can't I, I can't remember his like his his arabic name but he's like one of the greatest surf rock guitarists of all time Wow. He changed his name to Dick Dale and he did the um the theme song from Pulp Fiction is him. Oh no way. Yeah, and that's a Lebanese dude. Um so you know yeah, his original his, name? Yeah. I don't remember his original name. I can't remember. So hopefully um, hopefully we, we get into the era of seeing no more Danny oh, Thomases, Danny Kairouzes, no more Dick Dales, probably I don't know what his name was, Anthony. Oh here, here's his real name. His real name is uh, Richard Mansour. Richard Mansour. Okay, there we go. Yeah, that's that's yeah, a, that's a classic over there. Yeah, so yeah. I, I I hope we do get to that point where, you know, you, you do find proper representation. Like we were saying beforehand, I think the scene is going to grow and it is going to get better. And I and I think when I've researched you and I've looked at you and you, for me, and maybe you can confirm or deny this, you encapsulate the American dream. You're a Palestinian oh, kid man. who grew up. I know this is this is maybe I'm, I'm putting a bit too much pressure <laughs> on you. I mean, I, I, I basically turned you into the great Gatsby, but um, <laughs> you, you're, you're a Palestinian kid who raised in the US, really loved music. And now you've had this really cool entrepreneurial career meeting all your heroes. So do you think that the American dream as it's like as you know, they like to sell it to us is real and that you kind of are, are an example of this? Um, that's a good question too. I, yes and no. Um, I have gotten to do all these amazing things, um, that would definitely have been much harder to do had I grew up anywhere else, but at the same time, it hasn't made me a lot of money. So, you know, let's talk again, like in like five or 10 years and hopefully like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. you know, I just, you know, a a little, you know, a little padding, a little emergency fund, like pay off my student loans, like these kinds of things. Um, my career hasn't panned out that well yet in terms of, in terms of that measure, Mm. but by every other measure, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Mm. It's been, I, you know, I got, I'm going to have to write a book one day for sure. I think those other measures though, Obviously, I'm not going to sit here and be like, you know, fucking Woodstock 60s hippie. Money's not important, man. You just need to chase the <laughs> money is very important. And and you do, we we all need to find a way of, of accruing it. But I think, um, you know, you're still very young. And to have the network you have, to, to have had the exposure you've had in, in a field that, number one, is notoriously hard to break into, uh, especially being this this palestinian kid with no roots in the hip-hop community is very impressive and uh look the the future is the future is endless man honestly i'm, I'm sure you're gonna do great things 
you literally just r produced the song and I, I gave you massive props for it because it's dope uh baby please don't go which is do you want to explain what that song is yeah sure it's um one it's like one of the like most recognizable like blues standards um it's been covered by everyone like literally everyone like rolling stones bob dylan the doors you name it um and it basically came from like i was just thinking uh it, ca it came from this project i'm working on uh about about my dad's band um because i was as i was like getting ready to put their music out for the first time i was talking to my dad and my uncles and like asking them you know like when you were making this rock and roll did you have an understanding that this came from the blues like did you know that in the moment or how did you find out about the blues and so they were like they were like very like honest with me they said you know we only knew what the radio played and what the records were that we could get our hands on and so they 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 had to find out about the blues like they had to piece it together they didn't have they didn't have the internet so it took them many years to come to that understanding so i started to think like um like what would what would their version of the blues have sounded like you know what might have been a song that they would have covered um if they had you know really if there was like blues being played on the radio at the time and this song i think is like there's a very good chance it would have been this one um so i yeah i just wanted to hear what the blues would sound like on on our instruments and it turned out pretty good i think and my hope my goal is that i can turn it into like a full album um, and try and get some of these collaborations between Middle Eastern artists, Arab artists, um, and like American artists, specifically like Black American artists. Mm. I yeah, think it was. That's a, would, I, that's I, would, oh. Yeah. Sorry, I thought go ahead. Oh no, like that. That would that would be quite cool because I think there would be it would be a very interesting perspective seeing if you can get like uh, people from the Arab region and at the same time letting them collaborate with African Americans and just. You know, relating their experiences in a weird way, even though like their experiences are different, but at the same time they're very similar. And uh, there was this thing I wanted to ask you before we get into another topic, as I've seen you, and it ties back to what you were talking about, like your career choices and money. And you've been also pretty vocal about following your passion, and you've also always said that one year your university years truly shape up what your passion is. And you've I've heard you say once in an interview that once you find that passion the most important thing you do throughout your life is make sure that you follow that passion and you commit to that passion whether that passion is a hobby that's something else but i seem to be at a crossroads myself as to you know being able to differentiate work and passion and how have you been able to do that because sometimes people might be passionate about something but then you're talking about will it give you financial reward and that that, yeah that's like I'm right there with you, man. Um, mm. It's it's definitely it's really tough. Like I like I know for a fact. Like I could be doing a lot better money wise if I had like stuck with certain things or kept going down certain roads. But you know, even like my my last job in LA, I was working in Hollywood. I was working at a movie studio, um, which was really cool and felt like a you know culmination of I got my film degree. Now I'm working in in Hollywood. And my boss was the guy who ran MTV for like 30 years. So it was like the perfect, uh, on paper, it was like the perfect like intersection of film and music for me. 
Um, but what happened was that like what they sold me on didn't end up being like what my job was. They said I was gonna have a lot of like creative freedom and be able to make shows and do all these things. And that started disintegrating and I, I was like very jaded by the end of it. Um, and what I learned from that is like, I mean, it was, I, it was worth it. I won't, I don't, I don't regret that experience, but what I learned from that is that after that, I'm going to be very particular and very sacred about the work I choose to take on. Even if it's not so much money up front. I know that like, if I save my energy for the stuff that I'm really, really passionate about, it's gonna, it's gonna, um, it's going to manifest, manifest itself later on down the road in really, really positive ways. And, and like, I think that's, that's something why, that like, sorry, go, sorry, go, 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 ahead, go, go ahead, go ahead. I thought you were done. The internet lagged a bit. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I, like my, and I only know this and can say it confidently because I've already seen it happen. Like to get that, that Hollywood job at that movie studio, I made a short film about Hannibal Burris. Um, I got a bunch of people in it. Drake is in it. Chris Rock is the narrator, all this stuff. It's very silly. It's not very well done. I didn't have any money, but the CEO of this movie studio found out about it. And so when I went in to do my interview, I thought I was, you know, I was like buttoned up and like thought I was gonna have to answer all these formal questions. And instead, like when I sat down in his office, apparently he's not only is he friends with Chris Rock, but he produced Chris Rock's first movie. I sat down in his office and he was like, all right, so how'd you get my friend Chris to narrate your shit? <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> and then we just like, all. yeah, not formal at all. And then we just like talked shit for like an hour and then I got the mm. job. And that was a passion project. That was yeah. me having a crazy idea and seeing it through. And then, and so to get before that, um, my, my job before that was, and I met Hannibal in college uh, doing what I was passionate about. My job before that was I worked at P. Diddy's TV network at Revolt. And the reason that I got that is because I made these documentaries about UGK, which led to me getting a job at um, the Roots website, OK Player, which led to me going to Atlanta to cover a festival out there. And while I was there, someone from Revolt uh, was there as well and was like, oh, you should come to LA and come by the office. And then between that moment and getting the job, I was... Uh, Rich, you remember Rich Homie Kwan? Remember that? Yeah, remember that guy? yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was in Houston, and I got asked to like film a day with him or something, like follow him around and film. And at the end of the day, I remember this, I was just telling a friend of mine this last night. Uh, he, the CEO of his label, which is called Think It's a Game, uh, this guy's name is Fly. Um, he sat me down in his car. I can't remember what kind of car it was now, but it was a nice car. He sat me down in his car. And he's like, it was like very like movie like cinematic moment. He was like, he's like, I, I kid. So what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I, you know, had just graduated college. I was trying to find a job, and I was like, well, you know, I have a camera. I like to interview people. Like something, something to do with that. I don't know. I could, I couldn't put a job title on it, but I know that I'm passionate about this. Is what I want to do. And so he says, all right, hold on. So he calls up who he calls up um, this guy named Tuma Bassa who was like one of the execs at Revolt. And he was like, yo, Tuma, I got this kid with me right here. He's really passionate. He just ran around with us all day filming. You need to make sure he's on your radar. Fast forward a few months. I don't think this that call got me the job, but 
few months it's later. It helped lay the foundations. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I, I can look back on my career and know confidently that when I was exactly chasing the things that I was passionate about and only what I was passionate about, they led to they led to bigger things. So whether it's this music thing or my podcast or whatever it is, like I know that by focusing on these and putting my energy into them, they'll pay off. And that's another reason as to why like a lot of artists right now, you're seeing this trend where a lot of artists are starting to move away from being signed by record labels at such an early stage in their careers and become more independent. Because if you're independent, the financial reward and maybe even exposure may not be as great as that if you are with a label, but the risk is actually, you know, the risk of actually doing something that will resonate with people and you having your own creative input onto it. Yeah, you, there might be risk, as I said, like financially, but you taking control of it from a creative perspective, you're, you're your own boss. And long term, if you're successful, then the financial reward is way more lucrative. And you, as I said, you have control about everything and... You know, you could network and you can meet people. And I think like your stories are testament to that because you ended up producing a lot of like independent documentaries or mini films or music, podcasts. And through your independent work, that got you exposure to get jobs in a variety of fields. And like, for instance, working with Diddy, that movie with Chris Rock and Drake. I think that was independent as well, right? That was like an independent project. You weren't, yeah, that's testament to that. And it, and it will continue to set you up for future opportunity. Like if you wake up in one year and you have a great idea, you can now look through your phone and you have the people who can take that idea from being an idea into conception. So yes, maybe the money isn't great right now, but you've set yourself up for a lot of maybe very cool future opportunities if the idea strikes. And Todd and I have spoken about this so much. Your career and what you do mainly it's obviously persistence and hard work and being smart and clever in how you work but it's a huge amount of lucky breaks like so many of the people i can talk about in the entertainment industry have 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 gotten their platforms through lucky breaks just you know Todd and i always have this conversation well what the fuck do we want to do with our lives where do we where do we want our lives where do we want our careers to grow and take us I never want to have that one title for the rest of my life. And I think Todd is the same. I never want to be, let's just say, you know, a podcaster for the rest of my life or a banker or a doctor. I think uh, everyone here in this Zoom chat right now wants to pursue their passions and explore different avenues. And it's just about persistence and dedication and hard work. You might not make good money somehow for the next 10 years, but guess what? When you're 42 and you have that idea, all of that hard work that you've been doing for the past 20 years, all of that network that you've been build, building up, all of the groundwork and the foundations you've laid in your career earlier may come back. And that one moment that everyone sees with you where they think, oh, this guy's a huge success. Look, he's on every billboard. He's creating companies. They'll think it happened overnight, but it's that 20 years of hustling and following your passion and grinding that's that's gotten you to that point, which I think people don't realize yeah. sometimes. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely. I know I... I sounded like Oprah Winfrey right now. I was trying to be very <laughs> inspirational. Right. No. It's not. It's not linear. You know, it's not linear. It's not like you do this and then this and then you get a bunch yeah. of money. It's you. Yeah. It's more like a culmination of things. You have to do all these things all around here, and they all swirl around, and then eventually. I think one you know thing, I mean? one cool thing that I got out of this podcast is like through all through most of the successful guests that I've met and had the chance to talk to was realize that 
all these successful people, regardless of what field they're in, the common trait they had at a young age was that they were doing multiple things at the same time. And as Ryan said, they didn't just want to have this one title allocated to them for the rest of their lives. And they were hustling in different fields and working like mad throughout their younger years. And that eventually laid the foundations of success when it comes to long term, like to long term success. And another thing is that in this day and age, particularly, people focus on short-termism too much. People want that instantaneous success. They want to like, oh, Saman is working in music. She should be blowing up within the next three months. If it doesn't blow up, he's a failure. And people don't ever have the long-term view of how your thing can resonate and stand the test of time. Me, me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1,000%. And I, and I uh, look, I, I hope obviously to, to have your voice in the entertainment and music sector uh, and represent Palestine. And a perfect example is like the song I mentioned, Baby, Please Don't Go. If anyone hasn't listened to that, uh, we can put a link because it's, it's a really good song combining, you know, Arab sound with the Oud that you guys sampled and then blues music. And uh, we want to see more of that. We want to see that divide. We want to see the fusion of, of Middle Eastern and American entertainment. And I think with people like you out there in the field and doing the work you guys are doing, we're, we're going to see more of that. The future is bright for our region in terms of art. Definitely not in terms of politics. We're fucked on that front. <laughs> forget that, man. We're At so least we can have some good that. art, though. We can, have some, we can have some nice songs and some nice you know, TV series. Like, thanks, Rami. But can have listen, some songs to listen, sing. Listen, Rami, if you could fucking get me some electricity and some water in my country, that would be great. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At least from the artistic point of view, uh, it, it looks bright. So, uh, dude, honestly, it was a pleasure talking to you. You're, you're a fascinating guy. And uh, yeah, man, all the best. Yeah, hopefully, one day we'll be able to meet in person as well. Inshallah. As soon as, as, soon yeah. as this COVID situation is over, yeah, I'm is booking over. a trip. I'm going to come. Yes, please. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please make sure to like, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Rami, Spotify, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm a Sabal. Thank you. Also, we'd love your feedback. So please DM us on Instagram at Fauda2020.